News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, he has called this a pilgrimage of penance. Pope Francis is in Quebec City today once again after asking for forgiveness for the policies carried out by the Catholic Church in residential schools. That's the second time on this tour where he has publicly apologized. So how is the reception in Quebec for this? Joining us now is Braden Jagger-Haynes, a reporter with Global News Montreal. Good morning, Braden. Good morning. So what is happening with the Pope's schedule today? Well, as of today, we'll have a historic mass. I'm looking at a steady stream of people wearing orange and the colors of purple as well as they arrive here by the bustle at St. Anne de Beaupre. This is a historical pilgrimage site, but also a well-known basilica for the indigenous community. This is St. Anne, of course, the patron state of grandparents, a very strong figure in indigenous communities. And this is something that we'll be able to see 10,000 people outside of the basilica watch what will be known as the historic mass of reconciliation that is what it's been touted as by the papal office or message of reconciliation one that we will be hearing along the words inside the basilica we also have about 1600 people there are special attendees of course as political officials but the most important being residential school survivors who will hear the message from the pope right in front of them and that is said to be one that will have a strong message with it, but also one that will carry a lot of trauma, generational trauma. Many people here saying that while they're happy to hear these words, many of those want to see that concrete action behind this whole pilgrimage of Venice. Of course, it has been this walking together, this idea of being through this with continuation, but there is a lot of steps that needed to be done, and many mm-hmm. of the communities saying that today. Yeah, that is very true. We've heard that as well from when he was in Alberta. So how did the, I know he apologized yesterday publicly again. How has that been going over? How has the visit been going over in Quebec? Yeah, the second papal apology on this on Quebec soil, and it has been received quite well in a sense. Many people wanted to hear that second apology here in Quebec. They also say that he had long, stronger words this time around, saying he had deep sadness and sorrow and shame of what was done with members of the Catholic Church, with the organizations of the residential schools. We also saw Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Governor General Mary Simon speak very strong words as well. And this time, they all had this same message of a firm desire to work towards reconciliation. And that is something that many people here and on the Plains of Abraham wanted to hear that. But... Of course, like I said before, the steps need to be put in place. As for the Plains of Abraham, we were expecting thousands of people to be in attendance, but it did not look as much as it was anticipated. Many people not showing up for that event, although there were significant uh, involved. I mean, the Pope did drive through the area. We did uh, some images, uh, more of a festive atmosphere there. I mean, we did see the Pope as well holding and kissing several babies that were handed over the fences to the Pope Mobile. Some of these uh, ideas for many of the Catholic people in attendance was something that they've never seen before and one that they said was on their bucket list, one person told me. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so, but yesterday, I know when we spoke, there was expected to be, like, pretty huge crowds uh, for Mm -hmm. the Pope at that event. So would you say it was not what was expected then? Well, it's hard to tell. When he spoke to us at the papal office, they say tens of thousands, and that was not what was in attendance yesterday, although anticipated... Yesterday, we only saw possibly a few thousand in attendance on the plains of Abraham. And this is a big green space, a historical site, so it might make the numbers look smaller or sparser. But when we come here in the mass, we will definitely see the large amount as it's much more in a condensed space 
I mean, the province of Quebec, in a sense, is one that is known for its Christian heritage, but as a sense of being very religious, that is very much not the same picture as it once was back in the 60s and later on in that time. Okay, I'd imagine. Okay, so what happens after today, then? How much longer does the visit go on in Quebec? Yeah, so after today's Mass, the Pope will be residing back. He will be still be in Quebec tomorrow, but he won't be doing any public appearances, more of a private meeting with members of the eastern areas of the Catholic Church and the Diocese of the East, and then he'll be moving to a Catholic, flying and going back to a sorry, not going back, but going to a Catholic for his last leg of the journey, and not many public events in that space, more private events as well in the area of Nunavut. All right, well, thank you so much for the update. Thank you very much. All right, let's talk about what's going on with our Raji Sohal this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. I took a tip out of your rule book and I said to my family, okay, no cooking this week. Nice. And so we also <laughs> had sandwiches. And? Uh, two days in a row. Uh, good solve because it's not just like, oh, it's physically uncomfortable if it gets hotter when you put the oven on. Like my brain can't handle it. I'm, at, I'm operating at this like <laughs> level where it's so hot. All I can think about sometimes is how hot it is. And I had this moment of jealousy because, um, you know, one of my kids uh, goes to various summer camps because school is out. The other one is in daycare. And so we took her up the mountain for this wonderful day camp. Uh, so she was trekking in the woods and she's a total nature girl, loved it, did that for eight hours. And then I dropped her off for a play date. My husband was like, oh, really? Do you, does she need like yeah, um, I was gonna say. You know, another thing? After <laughs> she probably needs to rest. But I reminded him that the friend whose house she was going to go to, they have very serious AC. So like even mm. when I dropped her off there, they opened the door. And for the me gust. standing outside in near whatever 38 degrees it felt like, uh, that gust of cool that welcomed me felt like walking into yes. a freezer, a deep freezer. I was like, yes, nice. go forth, child. Go forth <laughs> and cool your body. My sacrifice for you. Go ahead. Do this. Totally. totally. I feel that. If you've, if you've ever been in uh, New York in the summertime, and I remember years oh, yeah. ago being there, and it's just like hot, sweaty, muggy, gross. But every time you'd walk by a storefront and the door would open and you'd get that yes. gust, you're like, Oh, I got to go in there. I don't even know what they're selling, but I got to go in there. So your daughter was very lucky. Also, sandwiches for dinner, I feel like it's a bit like a picnic and kids love it because it's something different. Yes. And you know what? We're going to do it whatever day three, day four, day five. (laughs) Bring it on. I am not cooking. I pulled a simi and it worked out. I should listen to you more often. Honestly. You know what I was really fascinated by was the scene of people going for runs yesterday. I saw this too. I saw this too. Yesterday morning as I was driving home, probably at about 11, I was like, I see all these people exercising and I thought, you know what? Good on you. I I feel like I need to conserve my my energy, but I don't have AC. Maybe they live in AC, Raji, so they're just only going outside to exercise and then they're going to go back and have some nice cooling. I don't know. I had a very different reaction. I was about ready. If I wasn't enjoying the AC in my car too much, I was going to lower those windows and scream at them. Don't they know that it's apocalyptically hot outside? <laughs> Go okay, home, wasn't that protect hot. yourself. Yesterday was actually cooler than the day before. Didn't I felt the difference. Really? No, I didn't. Yeah. But what uh, I did find work, because, you know, we don't have a major AC in our house. We just have like one of these little portable air conditioners that can move around the house with us. Um, but we have kicked it into high gear with how many fans we have running. And at, at first I was like, oh, there's a logic to this. You got to 
you know, put one here and put one there at this angle, that angle. Now I'm like, no, 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 we've got 20 fans. Just have them operating on rotation in every direction and you will be cool. And so that worked for us. Just like all the different directions. It's total chaos and it feels good. Everybody has their method. Pamela wrote me and Pamela said, well, I must admit I am loving this heat. She said, I can get a little overheated while gardening, says Pamela. Her solution, gel packs. She says she always has some in the freezer and she grabs one and she puts it on the back of her neck, cools her down almost instantly. I like this. We did sleep in cool sheets yesterday and the kids slept in uh, wet, soaking wet, cold pajamas. Um, And I took them off of them after a couple of hours and put them in ones that were also soaking wet. And that worked like a charm. Everyone slept well. Um, But can I tell you uh, something else in a different direction? Yes, absolutely. So I know this is affecting so many people right now. We keep hearing about labor shortages just across the board. Now, I've been hearing them in my own, about them in my own community with regards to childcare shortages. I've experienced childcare shortage issues myself. Uh, you know, with the pandemic, there was uh, all the nanny agencies uh, that recruit regularly to help out families here. They're recruiting from abroad. And those agencies went on a full stop during the pandemic. Pandemic ended and they started to slowly trickle in like a couple of uh, people a week, but they'd quickly get scooped up. Now, uh, the labor shortage that a lot of folks that I'm hearing from as well, uh, that they're experiencing with childcare has to do with COVID. And Simi, it's hit my daycare too. Oh, has so it? For, yeah, and for it to hit our daycare, uh, which operates several facilities, it's an excellent daycare, but it affects over 300 families. And uh, that means that these people also can't just turn to the agencies because they're also experiencing labor shortages. And now I know the province hears this from all angles, but at some point, because we know we've had a childcare shortage for years, even before the pandemic, I really wish the government would uh, get into gear with allowing people to come on the visa program and on these chi- early child education uh, visas to come earlier and to get their training and to you know make the system easier for them to come because we need these workers so desperately. And I know as soon as I utter that, people are thinking, well, where are you going to house them? And these That's two true. issues, they're very linked. When people are making between $18 to $22, uh, there's lots of associated fees that uh, they have to um, take care of when they do come. Uh, it's not enough money to uh, rent a place, for example. So these are things that I want to mash out with uh, with the folks that work for the province. <laughs> I think, you know what, good to get that out there because you're right. A lo- there's a lot of labor shortages right now in so many industries because of people being sick and you know what they're sick they can't come to work and they shouldn't be coming to work but I think that also tells you how COVID is still a thing out there like I know we're talking about heat in summer and you know people getting back and doing their regular daily stuff but it feels like Raji perhaps we underestimated that how much of an impact COVID is still having out there. Yeah, and I keep hearing of more and more people getting it. So, for example, in this uh, child care center with all those uh, those uh, educators that have now got COVID and can't come to work, uh, I'm sure many families caught it as well. 
Um, and it just that that's how it works, right? Just that's how the spread works. I didn't expect for COVID to uh, continue to spread this way in summer, just given what we know about transmission. I thought this was going to be a fall winter thing. We were all going to get a nice break from it in the summer. And that hasn't been the case. People are still getting sick. And what I find really uh, odd is or interesting is that people are getting sick to varying degrees. Some yes. people are sick enough that uh, they can't get out of bed and others are able to work from home and still open their computer and stare at a screen all day. Yeah, you're right about that for sure. Also, you know, I think it is hitting us harder this summer than previous summers. One, because that version that's going around right now is more transmissible. But also, this summer is the first summer in a couple of years since we've had COVID that we're back to doing the stuff that we were doing before COVID, right? Just look last night, Celebration of Light. You know, yeah. A couple hundred thousand people packed downtown to check that out. So the, the socializing, oh, and the drum circle thing on Tuesdays, right down at yeah. Third Beach there. Thousands of people are showing up for that. So we're doing these mass events that we weren't doing before. So it's no wonder that this thing is still spreading out there. It's no wonder it's still spreading. And I wonder to what extent, because like, you know, when these uh, gatherings started to just start up again, it was very bizarre to witness them. It felt like, uh, so for me, at times it felt uncomfortable. I'd be like, the first thought in my mind would be like, ah, COVID, what are people doing congregating? Um, But then they're outside, uh, which uh, reduces the risk. Uh, But also people got right back into the swing of things because we missed it so, so much. They really did. Now I'm starting to hear folks say, "Uh, you know, not worth it for me to go to this or that due to the risk. I I really don't want to be out with COVID for a week. Interesting. All right. So people are are taking that into their own hands, which is, I think, what health officials would like us to do, right, is to decide for ourselves, but err on the side of of caution for sure. Raji, thank you. It's another day of some eyebrow-raising testimony, I would say, in Ottawa in front of the House of Commons Heritage Committee, having to do with the culture in youth sport, in particular in junior hockey culture. To talk more about that, we're joined once again by Ian Mendez, senior writer for The Athletic, who has been extensively covering this story. Ian, thanks for being back with us. Hey, Simi, thanks for having me again. Let's talk about this testimony yesterday. Uh, some of it was really quite startling. It felt like, you know, Hockey Canada had a lot of time to prepare for this, but their answers weren't very clear sometimes. No, they weren't. And I, I think, you know, uh, my takeaway from, from being in that room for, for two days for those parliamentary hearings uh, here in Ottawa were the, the chorus of uh, complaints from MPs. So, uh, you know, Kevin Waugh, uh, saying, hey, Canadians have lost trust in, in Hockey Canada. And, you know, Peter Julian, uh, uh, the MPA, who, if I'm not mistaken, is from, from New West, right? Yes. Uh, and, and Peter Julian saying, hey, it's time for new leadership. And, and, and Peter, you know, when he came out to speak to us yesterday, uh, just said he was profoundly disappointed, underwhelmed with the, uh, uh, the, the answers he heard from Hockey Canada. And, I, you know, I don't know what answers Hockey Canada could have uh, given that would have been satisfactory short of them saying we are completely overhauling our leadership team. We are stepping aside. We're moving forward. I think short of that, anything was going to be deemed unsatisfactory by the majority of the public. True. But it sounds like they couldn't even agree on sort of how many players had been interviewed, who knew what. And I thought, didn't you guys like get the story straight before you even testified? Well, so this is okay. And this is what's really interesting is that, uh, you know, back in June, uh, they said anywhere from, uh, and they weren't sure. They were like, well, we think six or seven players cooperated with the independent uh, investigation, or maybe it was 12 or 13. Well, it took the uh, the lawyer for the independent investigator, uh, Danielle Robitaille, who, who testified on, on Tuesday, so day one of the hearing, 
And she confirmed that 10 players out of 19 uh, participated. And, you know, that's finally, okay, finally, somebody told us how many, uh, how many players participated. So, uh, you know, I, I think the other kind of eyebrow-raising, uh, you know, piece of news that came out of yesterday, you know, Hockey Canada officials disclosed to me that the organization has paid out $7.6 million since 1989 to settle uh, wow. uh, basically uh, nine sexual abuse uh, claims. Now, we should point out that the majority of that, about 85, 90% of that $7.6 million was uh, to settle claims related to Graham James, who, if listeners don't know, was a, uh, you know, basically a disgraced coach who was, uh, you know, convicted of sexually assaulting uh, many of his players back in, in, in the 1980s and, and into the early 90s. So, uh, but but that's a startling number for for Canadians to hear that this organization has paid out seven point six million dollars, and that doesn't even include what may have been uh, you know settled with this twenty eighteen sexual assault allegations stemming from London. Um, that's money that is coming from Hockey Canada, grassroots money that's coming from registrations from from kids who are playing hockey in the Lower Mainland or, or wherever they are in this country. A portion of that is, is paid to that. Uh, you know, help yeah. pay that seven point six million. That's what's upsetting. Twenty-one uh, uh, assault allegations that they have dealt with over the years, which I thought was a huge number, um, given that they're talking about you know young people here. So, what happens now, Ian? So this is this is the great question. Okay, so there's there's a few things that I want the listeners to understand that are happening kind of um, concurrently. Okay, so first of all, we're likely going to have another round of parliamentary. Hearings. We had some in June, we had some yesterday and, and, and Tuesday. Uh, they indicated to us, the MPs, that they'd like to see another round of these in September. So that's, that's item number one. Item number two is that the police in London, Ontario, have reopened uh, their kind of criminal investigation into what allegedly happened uh, but, uh, or amongst uh, you know, eight hockey players and, and a right. young woman in, in Hockey Canada's uh, gala. So that's been reopened. So that opens the door to possibly uh, a criminal, uh, you know, charges being laid. Uh, another incident from 2003 has come to light thanks to some terrific reporting from TSN's request head. Uh, so the Halifax police have said, now we're investigating that. While all of this is going on, Hockey Canada's third-party independent investigation into what happened in London is pursuing, uh, is still uh, happening. And they say if the players, those, so I mentioned 10 of 19 have, have cooperated. Yeah. If the remaining nine don't cooperate, Hockey Canada says they will be banned for life for playing wow. for Team Canada. So that includes World Championships, Olympics, uh, World Cup of Hockey, whatever uh, form that would take. And they say that those bans would be made public. So you would, you would like to think that if you don't cooperate with those investigations, boy, you're, you're making yourself look awfully bad. But again, we'll, we'll wait and see how this plays out. Yeah, you would like to think, right? Uh, listen, thank you so much for your time, Ian. Yeah, you betcha, anytime. Well, where are they supposed to go? That is the question about the tent city along Hastings Street after Vancouver's fire chief ordered the tents be taken down because of the fire risk. Now, that was supposed to happen over the last couple of days. It is uh, a work in progress, but many advocates and groups are pushing back, saying this isn't fair, they have nowhere to go, especially with recent fires like the Winters Hotel fire and others that have left so many more people unhoused. Well, to talk more about that, Fiona York joins us now, Crab Park advocate, and they have also been pushing back on this. Fiona, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So where is the this process at right now? Like, are people being moved out? 
Um, I believe from the latest updates that I've seen that it's a phased-in approach, um, but they had given a 5 o'clock deadline of last night um, saying that combustibles need to be removed from the street, and combustibles are defined to include tents. So obviously that's a pretty major call and major deadline, but the follow-up to that was that it would be a phased-in approach uh, starting with education and then moving on to a gradual uh, eviction process. And, and what are you hearing from people in the community then about this? Like, is there, where, where are these people going to go? That's a big question. And it really, this seems like it's an eviction without a plan. Once again, back to kind of square one with tent cities and encampments and people staying in public spaces and people staying on the street. We have over 2,000 people who are homeless and more people who are seeking to be out of buildings that uh, need to be retrofitted because they can't cope with extreme heat and uh, buildings that just can't cope with that and uh, that are not suitable for people to stay in. So we have so many people who are on the street and we just don't have a place for them to go and then they're being pushed out of the very few places that they are able to stay even briefly. So it's this endless kind of shuffling and cycling of people without a clear plan in place. And again, it's very similar to what happened with Crab Park last summer where people were seeking to stay in uh, in the park, which is a public space, and um, being pushed from place to place within the park, and then eviction orders, two eviction orders without a plan, and people were just being told to leave without any place to go. Okay, so is has any progress been made, Fiona, in terms of how this is being dealt with, how this is discussed about helping people? I know that there has been some communication. Um, you've probably seen some of the mayor's office talking about working with community organizations, and there are groups who have been doing tremendous work in that area. Uh, groups like Vandu and the Coalition of Peers uh, Dismantling the Drug Wars have been doing work, and so they've talked about working with those organizations. But yet, if that communication and that work was happening, then um, I think that they would have seen that there is progress that was being made by community organizations with peers and people, uh, residents of the of Hastings Street to work around things like uh, fire safety mitigation and uh, making the streets more accessible and just allowing that to happen um, and working with those groups to support that happening rather than just deciding to push people out and not having a plan in place at all. Um, given what's happened also recently, the discussion about the, the safety, the vulnerability of people who are unhoused, do you feel there's more awareness now to this? I think it. There is, but at the same time, we have things like horrific events this week where there is that sort of ongoing uh, stigma and dehumanizing that allows things like the shootings in Langley and a woman being set on fire this week. And it all happened almost to the same day as this eviction order. So even though there is a lot more awareness and um, at least lip service to wanting to do better and to improve things, you still have these things going on. And it really is about just that stigma and and belief that people uh, who are unhoused um, don't deserve to be treated the same way as other people. And so things like this can happen. And there isn't really a lot of progress being made in that regard. It seems like a lot of talk from politicians at this point, doesn't it? Exactly. And not, uh, again, just going back to square one, not having a place to go. Um, if in other emergency situations, if there was an apartment fire, a hotel fire, 
there would be something that was set up and some emergency provisions for housing and for services and shelter for people, but it's not being done in this case. So you really have to kind of question why is it that that's not happening in this case, but it would happen in other emergency situations. And this definitely is an emergency. So then, Fiona, what is the solution here? There is the fire hazard. The fire chief is worried about that. Uh, it did seem like it was he- heading towards like an unsustainable, unsustainable situation. So, so what do we do? I do believe that there are options to mitigate some of those safety concerns and situations. And again, working with the peers on the ground and the organizations and groups that have built that trust and relationship and to let them continue to do that work. Um, there's also, for example, in Crab Park, the fire department has provided some uh, support in the way of uh, fire extinguishers and train- training. Of course, that's actually done by the residents in the tent city itself, but the fire department is has actually worked with people to to mitigate some of those safety concerns and dangers. Um, I think it's also just a reconsideration, like it's balancing the needs of the community. And so often it seems like when we talk about the community, we're talking about the businesses and the tourists and the people who walk through every day, as opposed to people who rely on public space for their very survival. Right. So if we're going to talk about safety, let's talk about actual safety issues here. And people who are the most vulnerable. All right, so clearly this is a process then, Fiona. What, what do you want the people who are in charge of this process to know as they're doing this? I think that there are alternatives and more creative solutions. And again, working with people on the ground and allowing some of those uh, projects and some of that work to actually happen is rather than rushing things along and just going immediately to an eviction. Also looking at emergency options and shelters um, as they would in any other emergency situation. And then thirdly, looking at the whole idea of public space itself and accessible public space, which goes back to the debate around people in parks. Um, in Crab Park, there actually was a designated place set up so that people can legally stay there. And I think that should be looked at for other parks as well, because that would free up more space <coughs> and, excuse me, and potentially more shaded space, which is essential right now. Um, shaded space at the moment in this area is largely in parks and most of those are off limits due to uh, current bylaws around uh, accessing space. So Fiona, are people willing to move if they are given assistance to go somewhere and they find like something is acceptable, another situation? I think that defining acceptable is a big question. Um, There's uh, certain um, issues around accessibility, location, um, is it going to be near services that are provided? Is it going to be with the community that exists already that people have built up that look after each other? Um, is it going to meet the needs and not just be something um, that we've seen before where it's people being pushed into an SRO or a shelter or something where it simply is not meeting their needs and doesn't feel safe to them? Uh, but I do think that people are willing to look at other uh, solutions, other options. Um, I don't think anybody chooses to stay on the street or stay somewhere that may be less safe than proper housing. Most people would um, definitely uh, agree to go somewhere if it was safe housing, but it's just not being offered. All right. Fiona, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you for having me. Two weeks ago, we heard about the shooting of Raputaman Singh Malik. And then yesterday, the news that police have actually arrested and charged two people in that murder, which was shocking for how fast that seemed to happen. So we thought, let's talk more about this. What do we know at this point? And how did this happen so quickly? Well, joining us once again is Salim Jiwa, multiple award-winning Vancouver journalist, author of The Death of Air India Flight 182 and Margin of Terror. Salim, thank you for being back with us. 
I assume good morning. What did you think about how quickly this happened yesterday? That oh, uh, speaks to a certain level of amateurishness yes, on the part of the two suspects. Because uh, if you bring your own car that is recognizable to your buddies and to people, then you are no professional hitman. I think the car uh, traced back to them so easily it speaks to a first-time kind of, you know, get out there and do a hit kind of situation. Right. But not people who are seasoned uh, people killers. Um, and this is where the cops get lucky, I think, um, that uh, this car is uh, so visible as it enters the property area where the shooting happened and then it's traceable back to these people. And that's where uh, another element of uh, uh, suspicion comes in in terms of piling on the reasons why Malik would have been murdered. Right. And it was, they were very clear about the car thing, weren't they? The connection yesterday, that really was key to this. Yes, absolutely. And then usually we see cars being burned because they're stolen vehicles. And when they do a deed, they don't want the car traced back to them because of forensic evidence that you would leave behind in the car. You would leave behind your fingerprints, uh, DNA samples possibly, and other things. And that's why you torture a car. But in this case, it seems to me that they torture their own car. Those cars are usually stolen cars when professional hits are done. And this is where the, where the cops get uh, very, very lucky. Now, we'll still have to see uh, whether this was a robbery gone bad, whether there was a hit from somebody within, within the community uh, of militants. Uh, what happened? We don't know. It just complicates matters a little bit. Right. What questions do you still have, though, when you look? And uh, remarkable, can you ever think of another case, I should ask, where there was a development like this so quickly? No, I can't. Uh, I mean, what you see, what we judge it as a gangland-type shooting, really requires somebody to steal a vehicle that's not traceable to them, and then is destroyed a few blocks away in a fire. Uh, we see uh, this this notion of... Uh, we, we see violence in the histories. We see... We see both of both Tenor and uh, Fox and uh, Lopez have a degree of violence, but we don't see uh, a major drug connection, you know. Uh, so that's where, where the problem comes in, is it, it, it throws you a curveball in, in the context of the reasons we would come up with, with why somebody would want to kill Malik. Uh, that, that's where the problem lies. Okay, so what happens now? What questions do you still have about this? I, well, obviously, the, the issue for me is he's such a high-profile person. Um, uh, who organized it? Who asked these people to go do it? The big question for me is uh, who is still to be unearthed, who is to be uncovered? Uh, that's the big question. Uh, if it's a robbery... If Malik carries a lot of money back to his office in the morning, uh, how did these people hear about it? How did they know about it? Uh, they have to have 
associates within the community, and even they, even though they don't have a history of major drug involvement or gang involvement, it still raises a question of a hit. Uh, it was done in an amateurish way, but uh, it's still uh, a paid uh, job. Right. And, and also, I thought interesting that the police noted as well, Salim, these were local people known to police. Yes. I mean, they have a history. They, they have a long history of uh, bail uh, violations, uh, gun violations. You, they have a history of beating up people, assaults and other things. So people who are known to the police, well, well generally hitmen are, are quite anonymous uh, and, and they're very professional about how they do things. This this car sticks out like a sore thumb and says, uh, I, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to emulate the professionals, but I'm really no professional. Right. And they're so young, right? The, the, oh, the accused yes. in these cases, 21 and 23. Yes, very young. Uh, I think Fox is 21, Lopez is 23. And, and this is where this inexperienced thing comes in. Uh, I don't know anyone else who has done a hit who would burn their own vehicle. Because let's face it, uh, there are engine serial numbers all over the place. There was a plate that might have been visible to the cops on many CCTV cameras in that area. This is a, a highly used business area behind Pyle Center. Uh, therefore, this car must have appeared on many, many other CCTV uh, cameras, storefront cameras, etc. So, yeah, amateurish job, but still uh, leaves us a question. Who, who organized it? Yeah, you're right. Still so many questions. Salim, thank you so much for your time this morning. Okay, Salim, thanks. So many of us are, you know, streaming movies, got a list of TV shows that I have to catch up on, but that doesn't mean that I don't also have a stack of books that are waiting to be read because I feel lost without some books there. But are other people reading as much? Let's find out. Raji Sohal joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yes, I know you are an avid reader. And I wonder if that changed at all for you during the pandemic, if it went up or down. Um, I keep track of all the books that I read. So and I've been doing that for about 10 years. And if I go back and check last year was actually a banner year for me in terms of how many books I read. Really? Yeah, I broke the 50 bookmark last year. So that was pretty I usually average about between 40 and 45. So last year I broke the 50 bookmark and I was, I thought, you know, that was pretty good. Good. Yeah, that is. I've never kept track. In fact, I don't even hold oh, on to fun. my books. What? As soon as I read a book. Yeah. As soon as I read it, I'm done with it. I pass it on to someone else. And even if I like it, even if I love it, I do it even more quickly because I just want to share it with other people. Well, I recently read this article with a byline that totally shocked me. It was in the New York Times and it said more than 300 bookstores have opened in the past couple of years. And it just blew me away because I thought, okay, with the pandemic, yes, people took up all kinds of hobbies. I know people that started making breads and things like that, taking up crochet or whatever. Uh, But I was a little bit surprised to see that books became so popular again, because I know a lot of folks were streaming a lot more than they used to. You know, my home life doesn't afford me 
the time necessarily to delve into watching all the shows like I once did. But reading is something I try to consistently do because it's just part of my night routine. Uh, before I go to sleep, I like to you know read a couple of chapters of my book. Well, in a survey of booksellers earlier this year, an association found that 80% of respondents said that they saw higher sales at the bookstores they owned in 2021 than in 2020. And it has since gone up as well. So I was so curious about whether this is the case in Vancouver. So I called around, I spoke with a few bookshop owners. They all told me astoundingly, yes, yes, we are so busy. We're busier than we've ever been. Surprise, surprise. Some of these uh, bookshop folks are a bit uh, introverted, don't love to be recorded on tape. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, But I did talk to one, Ilana Lancer, who works at Book Warehouse on Main Street. I asked how the book selling business has been going for them. Obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic, it it slowed down for a period of time. But then things just got increasingly busy. Uh, People were just really searching for ways to stay occupied, but also they want to read stories about people and connect with people and continue learning about different things. Yes, so we've definitely seen a huge increase. They are on the bandwagon, absolutely, and with no sign of, of leaving it. It's definitely been, fortunately, a continued source of of joy for people. We get lots of children in here, adults, older folks, all kinds of people, all backgrounds, and everybody's very hungry to read and they, they're still hungry. I've definitely noticed, and this is coming from my experience directly with customers, that people are more apt to come into a shop uh, and have an, an experience rather than to just, even though it might be more convenient for them to order online, they would prefer to get out and connect with somebody in a bookstore, a real person. We happen to have recommendations that we post throughout the store on our staff picks with, you know, little written reviews. And we're constantly getting feedback from customers as to how incredibly helpful that is and how much they enjoy reading our reviews and just getting recommendations. Um, And they can't really do that online in the same way that they would in in a shop like ours um, and have that same, it's sort of like a community hub too here. So people get, they get a book, but they also get a few minutes of chat and, you know, friendly exchange about the weather, or maybe we're, you know, we get excited about a book they're reading and we're excited about a book we're reading and we want to share with them. So there's also that I think that inspires people to come into a store rather than just to order online. We're definitely seeing at least in our shop, a lot of younger readers. So by younger, I'm talking about not just kids that may come in with their parents um, that are school age. So anywhere from, you know, six to um, 12. We are also seeing a lot of younger adults. So anyone from like 13, 14 and up who are reading like crazy. They are just really hungry for stories about fantasy and horror and we're selling a lot of queer and indigenous um, books. Young people, there's a real audience there. They, they're really interested in not just learning more, but seeing more of their themselves reflected in those books. So we're definitely seeing a lot of that. Graphic novels, too, are huge. I love it. That's so encouraging to hear. And what about book clubs? What's the popularity of those like these days? They're still going strong. Um, and I think 
obviously the pandemic influenced that to some degree and that people could arrange to have like Zoom book clubs and connect online with communities and those who hadn't been a part of a book club before were inspired to create one. And just for the simple fact that they needed something to, to focus on that would take their minds off of what was going on and also just to connect with others and share stories. And I'm seeing more of that now than I did the beginning of, you know, the first couple of years for the pandemic. That is so nice to hear. There's something just particularly rewarding about not just enjoying a good book, but as you were pointing out to Roger, like passing that on, uh, you know, and I have a circle of people that I give books to and we kind of go around or just even to check in to ask like, hey, what have you read lately? And it's just, it's great when you can get a good recommendation. Yeah, I find myself when I'm looking online uh, for the next book that I'm going to read, just the recommendation reading reviews, I seldom go with those actually. I end up going with something that, hey, maybe either you mentioned to me or my sister did or one of my friends did. So I tend to take recommendations from uh, people in my circle, but as well as from going in person. And Ilana mentioned it there that when people come into the shop, they're looking for that real person with a real recommendation. And I find that I've also had some great encounters with people in bookstores. Now, I know you know that I like to talk to people when I'm out and about. I do get chatty, but um, I've found in bookstores surprisingly, it's gone the other way around where someone else sparks conversation with me because of something that I'm holding. Recently, this one woman while I was in line, I was holding one book and she had a huge haul of books and she went off to me about the book I was holding and about how it changed her life. I was, it was just the most thrilling conversation with a total and complete stranger. Okay, we ended wait up- Wait a minute, wait a minute. What book was out. this? What book was this? It was uh, Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine. Yes. Have you heard of this book? Of course, yes. Yeah. It's great. And the characters stay with you. And, uh, you know, her review was just so much more riveting than I could have gotten from, say, reading it online in like a Google review or something like that. Um, And I think that people also, for the same reason that they stream movies and shows, they want escapism more than ever right now. But folks are also turning to books, uh, I think, because we, during the pandemic, we went through these waves of social movements that made people want to educate themselves, like Me Too, Black Lives Matters, the discovery of unmarked graves. I think people want to understand more about the world we live in, educate themselves on these issues. And so that's why we're seeing uh, an uptick in interest in Indigenous books as well. Um, a friend of mine also works at Book Warehouse, uh, the manager there, Marianne Yazadjian, and she's the one who contacted me, oh, probably about six weeks ago, we were talking about books, and she mentioned the book Still Life by Sarah Winman. And when Marianne tells you that this book, she couldn't stop thinking about it, I usually go right away, and I did. Went right out and bought that, loved it. Amazing. Raji, put that on your list. Okay, it's on the top of my list, Simi. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. I love it. <laughs> Good. I always take your advice. I don't steer people wrong when it comes to books. I also try to, when I'm talking to a person, individualize my recommendation to them, right? Knowing what they're like, knowing what they love, and then changing it up depending on, because like I'll read anything, but some people, you have to do a very specific book. My cousin is like that too. She always phones me to say, what should I read? And boy, I've got thoughts. I've got thoughts on that. I know you do. I love it. Thanks so much for talking about books today. Thanks, Simi. In the West Kootenays of our province, there's a town called New Denver. Maybe you've been there. Well, it's in the news right now because it, along with too many other small towns, is facing the same huge challenge, a cut to its emergency room services. And the mayor is not happy about that. Well, joining us now is Leonard Casely, the mayor of New Denver. Thank you for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. First of all, Mayor Casey, Casey, for people who don't know, tell me a little bit about New Denver. Well, New Denver is located in the West Kootenays. We're uh, on a on the beautiful Spokane Lake and uh, in a very mountainous area with, with all the challenges that go with that. Okay, when you say all the challenges, and how big is your hospital? Our hospital is is a health center with a 24-7-ER. Well, we used to have a 24-7-ER. Um, it, it has been cut over the years. I've been involved in with the changes to the health care in the center since 2003 and dealing with the health authorities back from then on. And uh, it's been a challenge with the health authorities themselves and the ministry. Um, we've been able to find doctors, but uh, the unwillingness or the lack of interest from either Interior Health or the ministry to put these doctors to a long-term contract, other than giving them one-year extensions on each year, uh, really doesn't bode well for trying to attract people. And not only that is that it, uh, they're coming to the end of tired of being led along by a stick with a, with a carrot in front of them. Right. So how, how big is New Denver then? Does the, does the health center there, the hospital, does it serve a wider area? Yeah, it's, uh, the community is, is 550 with it exactly in New Denver. And then there's another community five kilometers away, which is Silverton. It, and it has uh, just under 200, and then the outlying area about 3,000, you know, and including Spokane, where one of the nurse practitioners, when we had one of them, would go down and service uh, a center, the folks in Spokane, which is 20 kilometers away. Right. So this is this one hospital then in New Denver is kind of looking after a large area. Yes. It's more than just a single community. It's it's a whole demographic area and in the winter it it poses huge challenges for people to get care and also the um, lack of ambulance services since 2003 basically is is always a challenge because when one of our ambulance goes out for us or or in a cusp which is the next closest facility um, they're gone from anywhere from six to to eight hours like the cusp it's probably six or seven hours and closer to eight if depending on traffic and weather wow when they take somebody to our so-called regional hospital and trail okay so then in terms of doctors and, and physicians that you have in that whole area so how many doctors would you say you have looking after the thousands of people in the surrounding area we have we have three physicians and we had a nurse practitioner um the Nurse practitioner um, was had gotten sick, and then the burden was putting on the three physicians that we have, and we've done a really unique thing here because in order to survive, we look outside the box, and uh, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, it's hard for the ministry and IH to, to, to grasp that, and, and but that's what it takes to be in rural BC. You have to look outside the box and look at different ways. These doctors come in, and they work... Uh, 10, uh, 10 day rotation of 24-7. They do cover the ER, right. they look after the patients during the day. So it's a big commitment, and they've been doing it. And the two that don't live in the community um, that were helping our long-term doctor, uh, Chuck Brookholder, um, who lives in our community, but he's, he's 
looking at wanting to retire at some point because he's ran this place lots of times by himself. Right. And that seems to be a burr in the side of the of the ministries uh, that he's overpaid for doing that, but he's the one who's actually looked after. Well, and it's kept him there. Yeah, it's kept him there, right? And and that's guaranteed somebody being there. But let me ask you this, uh, Mayor. So what's happening now? So I understand they're cutting back the time on the emergency room. So what they're doing now, where where a lot of the other ones are being temporary while they while they replace the staff, is this one's being cut back to eight to eight uh, until they can inevitably until they find staffing. But my question is, and every time I've asked this question to IH in the ministry, is show me where you're actually looking for these people for our site. I know you're putting all your effort in to fill that new ring in Kamloops, but Show me where what you guys are doing, and they never—they're not accountable for seeing what or what they're doing for rural BC for their actions. And they right. take nurses from our site, put them somewhere else, and creates a shortfall. It's almost like and, a like a domino effect, isn't it? Right? Like well, the, the big hospital needs some help, so they're saying, "Oh, we're going to pull you from here to do this." But then, what happens to those other communities? Well, yeah, it, it's actually quite basic math i'm pretty sure i went through that math in you know about grade three or five maybe that there's only so many people and you take one from here to put to there it makes you short on the other side at least when i moved numbers in in math yeah. years ago yeah, but exactly. you know i'm i'm just a just a, a country boy who I've lived here all my life and my so. parents uh, Grandparents were born here and stuff. That's amazing, you know, though. Listen, pretty, Mayor Casey, that's person. amazing that you've been in New Denver for that many generations. So you've seen this change happen, and you know that it's been a fight for 20 years, but do you feel right now it's it's pretty bad? Yeah, it's actually at the worst. I think that there, there's always been an alternative plan with with the health authority and the ministry, and I think this is where they're going to implement their new plan of, you 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 know, they've told us lots of times, we you, you guys shouldn't have a 24 ER. It's, you know, in all their cuts and they've done everywhere else. At least right. back in 2003, when we went in front of the minister and met him on his, it was Minister Colin Hanson, we met him on his holidays in, in Kelowna at a hotel. And he laid out that if you show us financially that that place is not costing the system by closing, you know, costing the system overall. You know, because who you close one, yeah. one reaction, one, when you create a... That chain reaction. You create a chain reaction. Sorry, I'm yeah. just so frustrated. I know, I can tell. And you know what? Of course you would. You live in a small community like that. It's not asking for much to have one doctor, right, who can look after everybody. So what would your message be then, Mayor Kaisley, to the people in charge here? What do you want to say to them? Well, I think it's it's time we look at at not where it's community-managed, the sites are are not managed by managers from other sites and able to pull people as at will when they feel they need to, and that the community looks after it. When we were ran by a community um, board, we were successful, it, very successful. And, like, it's a whole long story on this particular site. Right. But <laughs> yeah, I can tell. But you're saying, you know what, give these small communities a chance here, right? Because you can manage it. you got to just give you guys a chance to find a way. Yes. Well, you have to give us the flexibility and the chance to do it. Because you know what? In summertime, our population triples. But in wow. winter, it doesn't. You know, winter, we can get away with, oh, maybe we can... Uh, 
um, we can cut back on the doctors and stuff and do the savings where you can save, not just a simple cut like they like to do, which works for the big centers. They do right. a great job of running big centers, maybe or maybe not, but I know they can't run run um, small centers. And this isn't just us, finally. It's all over BC. It sure sounds like think, it. And I think it's time the residents of rural BC stepped up and be spoken and we we have this group called the BC Rural Health Network that we're a part of, and I think that's where rural BC other mayors and that should get a hold of us through that and bring our voice to to the minister and to the province, rest of the province. Right. Here. Okay. Well, listen. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Well, thank you for calling and being interested. I appreciate it. Anytime.